Huddy Ledbetter stood there on the dirt road. It was dark, the moon just rising over the swamp in the Texas sky. Three men were with him. Two of them knew him as Walter Boyd, an alias he had adopted after escaping prison, starting a new life with his wife in a sharecropper's farmhouse in Bowie County. The other, a man named Will Stafford, friend and husband to his cousin Mary, lay dead on the road. In his hand, Huddy held a gun, still smoking from firing the bullet that had killed him. For a moment after the shot, even the crickets didn't make a sound. The two other men stared, hearts pounding, as Huddy realized what he had done and what it would mean for him. He was already a fugitive. He was already wanted by the law, and murder was a hard crime to run from. He looked at the witnesses. They were looking at him, wondering, what was he about to do? What happens next is history. Let's find out what that was in part three of the series showcasing the epic life of Leadbelly. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. We last left Leadbelly on that dirt road in Texas, his friend dead at his feet. But before that, there were years of events and choices and circumstances that had led him there. To recap, Leadbelly had grown up the only son of two farmers on the outskirts of Mooringsport, Louisiana. His parents doted on him, something he later talked about openly. His other relatives criticized his parents, saying they gave Huddy too much freedom and no discipline. But even though his parents loved him, his childhood was far from perfect. He was witness to domestic violence in his home, as well as violence outside the home. He started playing music at age two, and by 14 he was regularly playing paid gigs. He was also coming home bloody, with torn clothes from the fights he'd get in during those gigs. At 16, his father bought him his first gun. A few weeks later, he committed his first attempted murder. After two teen pregnancies and a growing reputation for violence made living life in Mooringsport feel a bit claustrophobic, he left home. He traveled, heard the jazz and creole of New Orleans, made his way to Dallas where he met Lethe, a kind woman who he married and loved, though he had numerous affairs throughout their marriage and he would never be faithful. He met Blind Lemon Jefferson in Dallas, too, the first great blues legend that would later inspire Robert Johnson, B.B. King, Lightning Hopkins, and countless others. With Blind Lemon, Huddy continued to shape his music, craft, and refine it into the powerhouse of influence it would become. Dallas is where he fell in love with the 12-string guitar, and this became his primary instrument for the rest of his life. After the two parted and Blind Lemon left for Chicago to record over 100 songs for Paramount Records, songs that still will chill you to the bone, Huddy and Lethe moved back near his parents in Mooringsport. Huddy continued to play and drink and fight and womanize, and this would catch up to him. He was arrested, either for fighting over a woman or for assaulting one for refusing his sexual advances. 
The sources give both these reasons for his arrest, and since the early records that were kept in the Marshall Courthouse were lost or destroyed when it was moved in the 1960s, we'll never know for sure. What we do know is that Huddy couldn't afford good legal representation, so his parents made the 19-mile trip to Marshall, found a law firm called Lane and & Lane, and signed over the family farm to pay for their legal services. It had taken his parents years to save enough to buy that farm, and they had worked it by hand for decades, even building the log cabin they raised Huddy and his adopted sister Australia in. The lawyers paid off and managed to get Huddy a sentence of only 30 days in prison. During those 30 days, he was scheduled to work on a chain gang, doing grueling road work and manual labor for the state. But Huddy found prison life impossible to adapt to, even if it was only for a month. He hated being told what to do and where to go, and the guards were quick to whip the prisoners. So three days into that sentence, he decided to escape. And miraculously, he pulled this off without being shot. He ran through the thick pine forest he had known since childhood, found a field hand willing to cut his chains, ran upstream until he couldn't hear the barking of scent hounds chasing him, and collapsed on the riverbank before heading back to his parents. Now a fugitive, his parents arranged for him to stay with family up in Bowie County, Texas. He took Lethe with him and changed his name. He was now Walter Boyd, a sharecropper for hire who could break wild horses and play the guitar like he was born with one in his hands. He traded the life he knew, and his wife's life that she knew, all to avoid a 30-day prison sentence. In Bowie County, Huddy laid low, but soon began to play gigs and gamble and womanize the same way he had back in Dallas. He found a friend in Will Stafford, a man married to his cousin, and someone who liked all the same things that Huddy did. Will was also unfaithful to his wife, and he had been having an affair with a woman named Chammy Jones. Problem was, Huddy liked Chammy too. One night, when Huddy and Will were walking with two other friends to a dance being held at a local school, they began to argue about Chammy. The argument got physical, and moments later, Will was dead, and Huddy was holding the gun that had killed him. The only people who really know what happened are the four men that were there when Will Stafford was shot and killed. Huddy would adapt his story about what happened several times, and the truth of what really happened that night died with him. But I'll tell you what we do know, what the witnesses said, what Huddy said, and what happened next. And you can decide for yourself what happened in that lonely swamp in Texas over a hundred years ago. Will Stafford was murdered in December of 1917, just before Christmas. The two men walking with Will and Huddy were Ellick Griffin and Lee Brown. The four of them were close, often during the off hours between working in the fields, they could all be found together, passing the time in conversation, cards, and music. Will and Huddy were both married, and both involved more often than not in extramarital affairs. Will had even fathered a child with a local woman named Clara Boyd. Huddy was having an affair with her sister, Iola, and Iola would give birth to Huddy's child. 
This would be his second living daughter, and he would show no interest in the baby girl named Taletta. She died in 1991, the last of Huddy's surviving children. The running around, the dances, the drinking, and the camaraderie they shared after discovering how closely their personalities dovetailed was tested after they both began to fall for the same woman. Chammy Jones was her name. She was around 30 years old. She was not described as beautiful by witnesses, but she had a seductive quality about her that both men found irresistibly enticing. That, coupled with the intensity of competition between both men pursuing the same woman who was neither of their wives, caused a simmering of resentment, jealousy, and ego that, by the night of Will's murder, had erupted into a toxic, deadly boil of anger. And anger was not an emotion Huddy had ever been able to control well. Chammy had chosen Will over Huddy. She had even moved in with Will and his wife, a living situation that was hurtful and troublesome for his wife Mary. And I can't help but feel sympathy for both Mary and Huddy's wife Lethe for the emotional turmoil these marriages must have had on them. There are old newspaper clippings, surviving court documents, local legend, witness accounts, and surviving interviews with Huddy about the murder of Will Stafford. Those sources are helpful, as are many of the others I've used to bring you Leadbelly's story in this and the other episodes in this series. But the main source I've used, and I'm plugging this book in every episode, is a book called The Life and Legend of Leadbelly by Charles Wolfe and Kip Lornell. You can find it pretty much anywhere, and I've posted it at the top of my source list in the show notes, along with the other sources I've used in this series. I highly recommend you check it out. Moments after Will was shot, his body rolling to the low side of the road, the three other men fled the scene. According to newspaper articles printed during Huddy's trial, Huddy forced the other two men to flee with him. Lee Brown had been injured when Huddy had fired the gun, but not fatally, and neither of the two witnesses were going to walk away from Huddy, who was not only holding a loaded gun, but was now panicking, his mind swirling with every possible outcome. Neither Lee nor Alec knew what Huddy was about to do, and neither of them wanted to end up in the ditch next to Will. So they did what they were told, and they fled with Huddy all the way to the border of Oklahoma. This was around three miles from where they had left Will's body. Soon, Huddy and the other two men were standing on the banks of the Red River, a river that acts as a border between Texas and Oklahoma. Lee and Alec must have been anxious. If they fled with Huddy, they would probably be suspected in the murder of Will Stafford, too. If they tried overpowering him, they could end up injured or killed themselves. At the edge of the river, Huddy must have been wrestling with his own fears. He was already a fugitive after escaping prison a year ago. He had already moved himself and his wife to a new town to start over with new identities. Did he really want to do that again? Could he get Alec and Lee to say it was self-defense? Could he say one of them did it? If he escaped again, he'd be running forever. Starting over hadn't been easy. His music was put on hold, and every day carried the possibility of discovery and capture. No, he didn't want to do that again. We don't know what he told Alec and Lee as the three of them stared out over the water, but we do know he let them go. Huddy didn't go home. 
he stayed on the Texas side of the river at a friend's house. We know that because that's where the sheriff and his posse found him and made their arrest. No one reported the murder the night it happened. Did Huddy release the two other men after making them promise they wouldn't breathe a word of what happened? Did he tell them what to say if they were questioned? We don't know. But neither of them came forward to the law on their own. Will's body lay in the swamp throughout that first night. It was discovered the next morning by a group of children. The children knew what they had found and they immediately went for help. Only one house in the entire community had a telephone. A rider on horseback hurried to the house with the phone and contacted Sheriff Jim Baker, some 20-odd miles away, who came quickly to investigate the murder. First, he went to the house of Ellick Griffin and arrested him. He was released the next day, however, after telling his version of events. He claimed that Huddy and Will fought, and that Huddy shot and killed Will. The sheriff seemed to believe Ellick, and Huddy was soon arrested, placed in chains, put in a horse-drawn wagon, and incarcerated in the Bowie County Jail under the charges of murder and assault to murder. The assault to murder charge was probably referencing the injury Lee had sustained during the shooting. The charges were made against Walter Boyd. They did not know this was really Huddy Ledbetter, escaped fugitive from Louisiana. Huddy played along, never revealing who he really was. If his true identity had been discovered, additional charges would have been brought against him, and his criminal record would have only made his chances of going free even more of an impossibility. He claimed he had never been arrested before, and the sheriff believed him. This was 103 years ago, as of this recording. Fingerprinting for identification was a young and not yet perfected procedure, and at the time, there was no way for the sheriff to compare Huddy's true identification with his alias of Walter Boyd. It wasn't until 1924 that Congress endowed the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, with the authority to establish an identification division, which centralized all fingerprinting files and made it much easier to identify repeat criminals and missing persons. This was 1917. The lack of forensic technology on the part of law enforcement in his area was something Huddy was counting on. He claimed his wife's name was Allie and that she was living down in Mooringsport, Louisiana. He also claimed that at the time of the murder, he was a student and had been in school for five years. He also claimed that one or both of the other men with him had killed Will. The last time Huddy had been tried for a crime, his parents had paid for his legal representation by signing over their farm. Now, they didn't have enough to give up for him to get him good representation, so Huddy would have to rely on representation from the Texas state's roster of pro bono lawyers. His lawyer was a man named Mr. Thomas from the law firm of Mahaffey, Keeney, and Dalby. Mr. Thomas had limited experience in criminal law and was reluctant to take the case because not only did it appear to be clean-cut with the evidence stacked against Huddy, but there was no way a black man in Bowie County at this time in history would have received a fair trial. Justice was not blind if you were black in 1917. His lawyer knew this, and it does appear that he made an effort to represent Huddy, but it was a losing battle. Huddy wasn't helping his own case either. He had already pleaded guilty to both the murder and the assault, 
A plea bargain was not offered. It is unlikely one was even suggested. Huddy made matters worse when he once again decided to escape from custody. The system was moving too slowly for him. All in all, Huddy would sit in the Bowie County Jail for six months while he awaited trial. He had a lot of time to think about his options and realize he was not in a winning position. He was scared, and each day he felt more desperate. Not long after he was arrested, he overpowered a prison guard, stole his gun, and escaped out into the countryside. For three days, he managed to elude the law. But unlike his last escape, this one would not be successful. Three days after his escape, he was captured and brought back to the Bowie County Jail. The transcripts for the trial on the murder charges have not survived the century, so we don't have those to reference. But two local newspapers covered the trial, which gives us some idea of what happened. We know Huddy tried to blame the other two men for the murder, and we know that the trial only lasted one day. Later in his life, Huddy would say simply that Will Stafford shouldn't have crossed him. Whether this was an admission of his guilt or a reference maybe to self-defense, we will never know. But that statement sure doesn't seem to implicate the other two men who were with him. He was found guilty of murder and sentenced to no less than five years and no more than 20 years in prison. If Huddy had murdered a white man, the sentence most likely would have been death. The trial on the assault-to-murder charge was not scheduled to take place for several more months. The trial was probably not a fair one. Huddy's lawyer even filed a motion for a new trial, but it was denied. They did have a period of several weeks to present new information. A bond of $5,000 would have given Huddy temporary freedom, but that sum was exorbitantly high and impossible for him to realize and there just wasn't enough evidence to put together to get him another trial for the murder charge. His next trial, the one for the assault to murder charge, occurred in April of 1918, and he was once again quickly found guilty. His sentence for this trial was no less than two and no more than ten years. Coupled with his last sentence, this meant Huddy would be in prison for a minimum of seven years and a maximum of thirty. His lawyer, Mr. Thomas, filed to revise or reverse the judgment of both sentences, but this was dismissed, largely in part because of Huddy's jailbreak, and it was mandated that he be turned over immediately to the state of Texas. Huddy, still believed to be Walter Boyd by the state of Texas, was placed in chains and sent to the foreboding confines of Shaw State Prison Farm. Prison conditions at Shaw State Prison Farm were dire. Huddy had probably heard of it before he was sent there, and he must have known he was in for years of grueling, manual labor under the unforgiving Texas sun. Prisons were segregated, like everything else in Texas in 1918. Shaw was reserved for black prisoners and run by white prison guards. Huddy later commented how the guards regularly beat the prisoners, and the manual labor involved, even for someone used to working as hard as Huddy, was intense, as this was literally a working farm, cotton being its predominant crop. 
It was a large swath of land, 2,715 acres, about 1,100 hectares, situated right on the borders of Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. Two of its borders, the northern and eastern, were surrounded by the Red River. This was an intimidating barrier that lived in the backs of the minds of those prisoners who thought for more than a passing moment of escape. This is the third episode on Leadbelly, so you probably know him fairly well by now. Do you think he kept his head down, worked the fields, did his time, and waited out his sentence? No? Of course he didn't. He decided he would escape as soon as he possibly could. But this was Shaw, not the local chain gang and marshal he had escaped from three days into his last prison sentence three years ago. It took a year before a real chance of escape presented itself. Huddy wasn't alone this time. There was another convict that decided to escape with him. I couldn't find his name, but he and Huddy saw their chance and they took it together. They were working the fields with the other prisoners. The guards were looking elsewhere and the overseer hadn't yet been their way to count them. The two of them dashed underneath some overgrowth. Then they began to run. They made it a fair distance before they were spotted by the overseer, who immediately gave chase. Huddy's companion was not as fit as he was, and he began falling behind. He pushed as hard as he could, lungs burning for air, sweat stinging in his eyes, but he was captured before reaching the boundary of the woodline. But a breathless, determined Huddy did manage to make it to the trees, and the guards lost sight of him. He fled into the woods as far as he could before he had to stop, rest, and decide what to do next. He made a makeshift camp in some rushes next to the Red River, and exhausted, fell asleep. He was spotted by a white man walking through the woods. Huddy was no doubt conspicuous in his prison uniform, and the man was careful not to wake him. He alerted the prison guards as to Huddy's whereabouts, and when he finally awoke, it was to the sound of viciously snarling tracking dogs. The guard handling the dogs was barely able to hold them back, and this must have been a shocking thing to wake up to, especially since Huddy had thought he was finally free. The guard with the dogs ordered, Come on, Walter, let's go. Because they still thought he was Walter. But Huddy just shook his head and refused to move. He could not stand the thought of a minimum of six more years in a brutal prison system. And now that he had an escape on his record, that minimum sentence was all but a dream. He was inching closer and closer to that maximum sentence of 30 years. One of the guards drew his gun on Huddy, ordered him to cooperate, called him an extremely derogatory word I'm not going to say, then told him that if he didn't move, he would, quote, shoot his black heart out. But nothing was worth going back, not to Huddy. He really felt life was not worth living if it meant having to go back to Shaw. So he decided that right then, he would die a free man. He stood up, his large frame an imposing sight that made the guards thankful they had guns to hide behind. He turned his back on the guards and walked into the Red River to drown. Trigger warning here, I'm about to describe something bad that happens to a dog. 
So skip ahead about a minute if that's something you don't want to hear. One of the tracking dogs broke free and ran after Huddy into the river. When it got to Huddy, he put both hands around its neck, squeezed as hard as he could, and plunged the dog under the water until it drowned. Then he kept on walking into the river. The water made it into his lungs before they pulled him out. They revived him and kept asking how he was, but he was unable to speak. Eventually, they were able to stand him up, and they walked him around a bit before putting him into the horse-drawn wagon and taking him back to Shaw. He was in too weak a state to protest anymore, and the wet, deflated Huddy was once again a prisoner. The guards were brutal, and as soon as Huddy was dry, even though he was clearly in a weakened state, they began beating him. But Huddy, though he had almost drowned that day, still found the strength to fight back. He grabbed a hoe and swung it wildly. It gave him more reach than the guards had, and they couldn't get to him without risking severe injury. The guard in charge once again pulled his gun on Huddy, telling him if he didn't put down the weapon, he would be shot. Leadbelly later recalled standing there and looking at the guard intently as if he were ready to die. Given that he had just tried to commit suicide by drowning himself in a river, that was probably true. Eventually, the guards talked him down. There was no way he could escape again. His supervisor, a man called Captain Francis, kept Huddy out of the fields for a week. Whether this was due to a need for recovery or from fear that he may try to escape again is a bit uncertain. But the week he spent in recovery gave him time to reflect, and that reflection produced a Huddy that was strikingly different than the one that had tried to escape. Huddy was 30 years old now, and the prideful, violent, combative attributes of his personality during his young adult years had only hurt him. Being aggressive had only led to a life in chains, and a more mature, humbler Huddy was beginning to emerge from the chaos of a lifestyle that had become destructive. I'm not talking a night and day difference here. Huddy would have issues with infidelity and violence for most of his life. But that hard, egoic exterior that he had built up in response to a difficult life in a backbreaking world was rounding at the edges. Instead of escaping or overpowering guards, instead of fleeing to begin another fugitive life never feeling safe from his past, Huddy decided to play nice. Continuing to throw himself against the brick wall of the law would only get him a longer prison sentence, and seven years of hard labor, awful as it would be, seemed a lot less imposing than a 30-year one. He knew he would need to use the system if he wanted his freedom again, so he decided to do his time. Captain Francis told him that if he worked hard and kept out of trouble, no one would bother him. Huddy took the captain at his word and became what he later called a rolling son of a bitch, the hardest working man in the Texas penal system. Almost immediately, he began to stand out as a model inmate. He became the leader of a hoeing squad on the lead row. This wasn't easy, the work was no less grueling, and he was held accountable for keeping the other prisoners in line. But even when the frustration and the resentment he felt began to boil up, he kept his cool. 
Huddy was finally learning how to control his anger. Captain Francis was so impressed with Huddy's change that he formally requested that the Board of Pardons strike the prison escape from his record. His life at Shaw was not easy, but it was structured, predictable, and each day brought him closer to once again being a free man. Working as a prisoner at Shaw, going along with the system, must have taken an incredible amount of grit. And not just for Huddy, but for every inmate at Shaw, or any prison farm. And I need to address this right now, because it's an important part of not only Leadbelly's story, but it's a dark and often glossed over piece of American history. The 13th Amendment, which was ratified in 1865, abolished slavery in the United States. But it left in a loophole. The amendment states, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction, unquote. This means that convicted criminals can be used as involuntary laborers. And immediately after the Civil War, this had a huge impact on African Americans. Right after slavery was outlawed, many states began to pass what were called Black Codes. These were laws specifically designed to target African Americans. I like how the Encyclopedia Britannica explains it when it says that black codes were, quote, in U.S. history, any of numerous laws enacted in the states of the former Confederacy after the American Civil War and intended to assure the continuance of white supremacy. Enacted in 1865 and 1866, the laws were designed to replace the social controls of slavery that had been removed by the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment. Unquote. These laws were restrictive and often vague, making it very easy for a black person to be arrested and sent to prison where they would be forced into involuntary servitude. Jim Crow laws followed not long after this, remaining in place for almost a century, all the way until 1965. A dog had been shot into space and had orbited Earth before the U.S. let go of its Jim Crow laws. After the Civil War, the black populations in prisons boomed due to black codes and Jim Crow laws. These prisoners were leased out through a practice called convict leasing. White planters and industrialists literally leased these overwhelmingly black prisoners to work for them to replace the free labor they had lost when slavery was abolished. And because of the loophole in the 13th Amendment, it was technically legal. Many prisoners died in the overcrowded prisons, paltry conditions, and the burning hot fields where they were forced to work day in and day out under threat of physical violence. States benefited from prison labor too, through forcing chain gangs to build roads and by creating prison farms like Shaw, where prisoners grew things like cotton and sugarcane. Today, states still rely on prisoners laboring for free or for extremely low wages. Legal scholar and author Michelle Alexander in her book The New Jim Crow writes, quote, The criminal justice system was strategically employed to force African Americans back into a system of extreme repression and control 
a tactic that would continue to prove successful for generations, unquote. This is all the more disturbing when you consider that today, blacks are still incarcerated at disproportionately high rates. Bloodbelly was a part of this history. Most of those who worked on prison farms slipped away into the forgotten cracks of history. Huddy was in prison for murder, but many of those with him were there because of petty laws designed to put African Americans into a system where they would become free labor for an economy that wanted to fill the economic void of slavery. At Shaw, Huddy carved out a niche for himself, and very successfully. But just two years into what had become a tolerable regimen of routine, he was transferred to a new prison. He didn't want to leave Shaw, but he had no choice. And once again, Huddy was placed in chains and hauled away. He was heading to Sugarland. Hello, History Cache fans. I'm Jenny from the Australian Histories podcast, where we take a fresh look at some of the brilliant stories from Australia's past. If you have an interest in Australian history, you can dip in and out of the topic episodes that interest you and learn a little about the important and iconic incidents, people and places of Australia. Topics range from ironclad bushrangers, British convicts and intrepid explorers to the beloved platypus or the mighty emu. Ponder the construction of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the massive dingo and rabbit-proof fences or consider the Eureka Rebellion. If you can cope with my Aussie accent, I'm sure you'll find something that'll pique your interest. Have a look at the episodes available at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. That's history spelt with I-E-S. Thanks, Kristen. Cheers, everyone. Huddy was heading to Central State Prison Farm, sometimes called Fort Bend Imperial Prison Farm, Brazos Bottom, or more commonly, Sugarland. Sugarland took its name from the nearby town of Sugarland that had been built around the Imperial Sugar Company refinery. Sugarland, Texas, 19 miles from downtown Houston, is a different world today than it was in 1920. Fast food chains, McMansions, Little League teams, and supermarkets hide a darker past that lies just below the surface. In 2018, a construction crew was backfilling a trench for a new career and technical center when they found something unexpected. Human remains. Construction was halted and archaeologists were called in. In total, they found the remains of 95 individuals, now known as the Sugarland 95. It was determined that they were most likely African-American convicts that had died while being leased out by the state to work on sugar plantations. The youngest was around 14 years old, the oldest 70. This is not the only cemetery holding bones like this from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and its discovery was a reminder of the brutal reality thousands of convicts faced a reality Huddy had already been thrust into. By 1914, a few years before Huddy found himself at Sugarland, Texas legislature formally ended the practice of convict leasing. 
but Huddy and the other convicts would still be working hard labor for the Texas Department of Corrections. Sugarland was a brutal place. The fertile Brazos Basin was muggy, unbearably hot, and there are disturbing accounts of brutality from this prison. Bill Mills, a convict sent to the Imperial Prison Farm for horse theft in 1910, recounted later some of the brutality he saw at the prison farm in his book 25 Years Behind Bars. He claimed that prisoners were frequently whipped. This was done in front of other inmates to instill fear. He described one man who was unable to pick his quota of 300 pounds of cotton a day being whipped with 20 lashes over an 8 to 12 minute time span in order for his suffering to be prolonged. He also wrote of something called the Dark Cell. The inmates called it the dungeon. It was a small room devoid of light. He wrote, quote, A man was supposed to be in the dark cell 36 hours. Therefore, to keep the prisoners in the fields, they would punish as many as possible from Saturday night to Monday morning, with only one cup of water and one piece of cornbread Sunday at noon. The dark cell was a wooden room about eight feet long, six feet wide, and six feet high. It had no bedding or anything in it, so the prisoner was undressed and pushed in there without anything except a gown. They had to sleep on the floor unless there were too many to lie down. I have seen as many as eight men in a cell at one time for 36 hours." Unquote. That was generally a punishment for a first offense. Mills continued to write, quote, For the second offense, they would chain a man by his wrists. This was done by putting a small block and tackle in the ceiling of a building, with a long rope running through it, extending from the picket office to the floor. At the end of this rope would be an iron rod about three feet long. At each end of the rod, there would be an 18-inch chain extending downward. Another chain, or piece of leather, would be extended from that to a man's wrist. At the command of the picket guard, the building tender fastened this to a prisoner's wrist. Then the picket guard would pull the rope until he got the prisoner on tiptoes. And it wasn't unusual to swing him clear off the floor. According to the rules, he was supposed to hang there for three or four hours. But that depended on whether he became unconscious. For in that day, the guards seemed to enjoy punishing the prisoner more than the law required." Unquote. This was Huddy's new home. Despite the trials of the prison farm, Huddy would write some of his most important music here. The other inmates and the guards enjoyed Huddy's music so much that he was allowed to play frequently, even given permission to travel unguarded to other prison camps to play for tired prisoners, grateful to have a musical reprieve from the long, bitter days. This is the place where the song The Midnight Special became a staple of Huddy's. He didn't write it, but he adapted it, expanded upon it, giving it his own spin. His version is the one that became popularized, and many musicians have covered it over the last 100 years. There's some lead belly folklore out there that says he wrote this song, that the Midnight Special was a train, specifically the Southern Pacific Golden Gate Limited. Legend goes that if the train's light shone through the cell bars of an inmate as it passed, it was a sign that he would soon go free and it gave hope to the prisoners hearing the passing train as it rolled by the prison farm. Here is what that song sounded like. 
gonna come a Miss Rose. is a great legend about the origins of the song, and honestly, I thought it was true for years. But a version of this song had already been published by Howard Washington Odom in 1905, when Leadbelly was only 17, 15 years before Huddy would put together his version at Sugarland. The reason the idea that Leadbelly wrote this song has circulated for so long is because music historian Alan Lomax, who you'll meet in the next episode, recorded Leadbelly singing it years after Odom's book was published and assumed that he wrote it when Leadbelly told him about the train. Though the original version was not his, it is likely Leadbelly adapted it into his own style as he often did with songs that were popular in the prisons, juke joints, and saloons that he soaked up in his lifetime. It's not unusual to hear the same lyrics in different songs that came out of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as a lot of blues and folk musicians use the same floating lyrics in their own renditions of traditional songs 
and used bits they liked from other songs to piecemeal together something uniquely theirs. For Huddy, the Midnight Special was a train that gave him hope. And the feeling of that hope still echoes in the modern versions recorded by later artists like Creedence Clearwater Revival, though later musicians covering it made a lot more money off of this song than Lead Belly ever did. Outside the walls of Huddy's jail cell, jazz was booming. Mammy Smith had just recorded her hugely popular Crazy Blues, which you had a chance to hear at the end of the first episode in this series. Had he been a free man, there's no doubt Huddy would have been influenced by the jazz and huge wave of blues exploding across the country. Because he was isolated in prison, he would end up with a distinct repertoire, largely unaffected by popular music. He would be exposed to songs in prison camps. These were often old songs handed down orally through generations. Because these prison camps were largely untouched by the outside world, they were unique living islands of songs, repositories of archaic, unique music, something that definitely influenced Huddy's repertoire. His exposure to this music, coupled with the fact that he was missing the jazz age outside of his prison cell, would give him his sound, and that would later help him gain his fame. While Huddy was using his time to craft more of his music, his personal life on the outside was falling apart. He was now well over 300 miles away from his wife, Lethe, and at this point, their marriage fell apart. Things had already been strained between the two of them. Lethe had dealt with years of unfaithfulness from Huddy, and not only had he fathered a child with another woman while they were married, he was now in prison, hundreds of miles away, potentially for decades. The two never met, or even spoke again, as far as history knows. There is no evidence that they ever formally divorced, but their marriage ended when Huddy was transferred to Sugarland. He was now also hundreds of miles away from his parents, Wes and Sally Ledbetter, and they very much missed their son. The pair was in their 60s now, and a lifetime of hard labor and hard living was wearing on them. A year into his incarceration at Sugarland, his father, Wes, showed up at the gate and asked to see the prison manager, a man named Captain Flanagan. Flanagan agreed to meet with him, and the two men sat at a table across from one another. Huddy's parents had kept a few acres of the farm they had given up for Huddy's lawyer at his first trial, just enough for them to eke out a living. And his father had just sold it for a chance to ask for his son's release. He pulled out the wad of cash he had traded for what was left of his land and slid it over to Captain Flanagan. He told him to take all of it if he wanted, but to let his son go. Flanagan looked back at Wes with a mixture of wonder and sympathy. But this was not the local sheriff's office in Mooringsport where Wes may have had a chance at buying his son's freedom from an assault charge. This was the Texas penal system and Huddy had been found guilty of murder. Flanagan refused to take Wes's money, sliding it back across the table. But he did allow him to visit his son before he began the hundreds of miles journey home to tell his wife the sad news that their son was not coming home. An old, defeated Wes, weighed down by years of labor and the heavy strain of a lifetime lived in prejudice, said his goodbye to his son. Before he left, he said, quote, Don't reckon I'm gonna see you again, boy. 
I know I ain't got long to live. Four months later, he died. This must have been devastating news for Leadbelly. He must have found some solace in his music, and he didn't have much time to grieve as he was still sweating through long days of backbreaking work. Because his experience and the fact that he was able to endure was better than most, he was made a group work leader, a job similar to the one he'd had back at Shaw. And by now, no one was calling him Walter or Huddy. Now, he was known to everyone simply as Leadbelly. Like everything about his story, there are different versions about when and how he got this name, and he himself told different renditions of it. But the name Leadbelly was most likely a prison nickname he acquired at Sugarland. Anyone who was anyone at Sugarland had to have some sort of prison nickname, According to Wolf and Lornell's research, Leadbelly said later that a man without a nickname at Sugarland was like a little bug on the floor with no pallet to sleep on. Quote, he's nobody with nothing, but give that little bug a pallet and he's somebody with something. Unquote. The name Leadbelly most likely referred to his strength, his capability as a leader, and his vocal abilities. According to Leadbelly, one day the prison chaplain, a man named Griffin, who had his own nickname, the Sin Killer, came up to him and said, You're a hard-driving man. Instead of guts, you've got lead in your belly. That's who you are, old Leadbelly. And the name stuck. Leadbelly took to it immediately and used it himself for the rest of his life. Life went on for Huddy. Labor, music, long hours with nothing to do but work and think. It was 1924 now. Huddy was in the sixth year of his sentence. Seven years was the minimum, according to his sentence, but that was not a guarantee that he would not have to serve more time. Huddy was smart. He was always thinking about his freedom and about how to attain it. Escape was not an option. He had learned that the hard way. But there was potentially another way for him to gain his freedom. It was a long shot, so long that most prisoners would never have even seen it as an opportunity. But most prisoners were not Leadbelly. The governor of Texas, a man named Pat Neff, had the power to give pardons to prisoners, though this was something he rarely did. He had come to power because the last governor, a man named James Ferguson, had been impeached for a number of shady dealings, one of which had been selling pardons. Governor Neff had specifically and vehemently promised during his campaign in 1920 that he would never sell a pardon to anyone. For a convict at Sugarland, Neff would not have seemed like a viable way to freedom. But Huddy didn't want to buy a pardon. He couldn't afford to, anyway. He was going to try and sing his way into one. And Governor Neff just so happened to be planning a visit to Sugarland, and Huddy just so happened to be one of the convicts asked to perform for him. Immediately, he went to work writing a song, one that was specifically tailored to Governor Neff, one that would tell his story, well, something that resembled his story, and one he believed would be the ticket to his freedom. I promised that at the end of each episode, I would play you something from Leadbelly's era from the public domain. Today, that song is going to be sung for you by the Mother of the Blues, a powerhouse of a woman named Ma Rainey. 
Starting in 1923, she made over 100 recordings, and the haunting, full sound of her voice is just as powerful now as it was 100 years ago. This song is called Prove It On Me Blues, and it was written and recorded by Rainey. What makes this song so unique, especially for its time, is that it was a song written by a woman about another woman. Music and history scholars have questioned the sexuality of Rainey for years, and there is some evidence that she may have been bisexual. Though, since she's not around to speak for herself, I won't try and speak for her on it. The song is gorgeous, and since it was Pride Month a week ago, this is the song I've chosen to play for you. I hope you enjoy it. I will be back in three weeks' time with the next Lead Belly episode. I've been putting out episodes every two weeks for almost a year now, and that schedule, coupled with my full-time job and the fact that I've decided to take some classes in the fall, has been pretty grueling. The amount of research and thought I put into these episodes takes a huge amount of time and effort. That's because I want to be thorough, as accurate as I can possibly be, and I want to give you something worth your time, as well as do justice to the people and places inside these histories. For that reason, episodes will start coming out every three weeks for the foreseeable future. That will change if this podcast can someday be my only job, but that is a dream that's hard to realize. And in the meantime, I won't compromise the content you deserve by trying to rush things. So I will see you again in three weeks, friends. In the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can help support the show and get me a dollar closer a month to my dream of full-time podcasting by going to patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You'll be given access to a members-only feed and benefits reserved only for patrons. Thank you so much for listening to the story of Lead Belly today. Stay healthy and happy, my dear wandering stars of podcast land. And until we meet again, go make some history. Now, here is Ma Rainey singing to you from 1928. Enjoy. When I last night had a good big fight, Everything seems to go around. I looked up to my surprise, the gal I was was gone. As she went, I don't know. I mean to follow everywhere she goes. Folks said I took it. I didn't know where she took it. I want the whole world to know. This day I do it. Ain't nobody caught me. you got to prove it on me. When I was last night with a crowd of my friends, when most men women, cause I don't like no men. It's true I wear color and a tie. The wind blows all the while.
Yeah. 